you for coming. Hi, nice to be here. Um, before we start, can you maybe explain a little, bo- a little more like what it is that you do um, for a living? Yeah. So I would say, number one, I'm an executive coach. So I work pr- primarily with businesses. And so I will coach their leaders. And I often do that through like an institution like London Business School or other associate companies. And so they will then put me in touch with their teams or specific programs and I will coach their leaders. That's number one. And then my second piece is researcher, research supervisor. So also with London Business School, I'm researching leadership development. And then I supervise research students who are also looking at positive leadership, um, positive work. So anything in that intersection between positive psychology, leadership and work and organizational flourishing, um, that's my sort of research area. And of course, I have then gone specifically into the area of social media and well-being because that then was coming up as something that needed a bit more exploration. Yeah, and I think people don't pay as much attention to it or maybe are not aware of the actual effects that social media has on on you. Um, Before I jump in social media, um, as I was listening to your podcast, I I wanted to ask you one thing about like the research because I – I also have like, I would say scientific background because I, I finished bachelor's in sports psychology and, and there's like so many papers to read, even when it comes to like one topic. Um, what, what is like your research style or how do you research um, certain topics? How do you approach it? Yeah. Well, I actually think the master's a lot of the masters was training in how to do exactly that research um, because I don't feel like there's one formula, but my social media and well-being research was a systematic review. And that has actually got me into a more systematic way of doing research because what you do is you define your search terms and then you do full database searches. And I just think that's quite a rigorous way because I think it's very easy to just go to Google Scholar, type in your keywords, see the most recent papers, most cited papers, and that's great. But I think there's a rigor about defining what you're searching for and then seeing what comes up and actually seeing like the number of papers. So I I like to do that now as a bit of a discipline um, on top of the Google Scholar approach and Also, I like to figure out which are in that space, like the reputable, the most reputable journals and use that as a starting point as well to kind of make sense of, uh, you know, which which papers I should be paying more attention to. The final thing that I always like to do, having done my own systematic review research, is I like to look for meta-analyses and I like to look for systematic reviews. And so for the listeners, those are studies which are... uh, synthesizing a large number of papers in a space and then coming up with either quantitative effect sizes or for systematic reviews kind of you know a a framework or um a scope of you know what is out there and i find those really really useful because again they give you they help you find your way um as you said there's always there's so much out there um Final one is just, you know, the masters, I think also having the professors and lecturers, you know, enabled them to kind of highlight what were good reading lists. So I, I do love a reading list, you know, oh yeah, they can't be underrated. underrated. I always go through them. Um, I remember whenever we would have um, 
like let's say we have to write an essay and there's a list of papers to read and some of my course mates they're like oh my gosh I don't know what to write and I'm like did you read this paper literally like all the answers are, are in just like in one paper they're like no I haven't and I'm like well <laughs> obviously you will not know what to like write or what to talk about because you haven't read the paper but like let's say how you at what point you know that you have come to conclusion when it comes to the research I think I think that's really really hard and so what I learned about myself because I'm quite a social learner and whereas doing academic research can be quite lonely you've got to do quite a lot of independent thinking and so what I realized was that when I'm feeling stuck I actually need to do more reading because sometimes I can just want to bounce my ideas off people and I when I'm feeling overwhelmed because I haven't got an answer yet, I, I allow myself to go back to the research and just find more papers. But you do need to make notes as you go. You do need to highlight as you go. Uh, so that's one piece. And then the other bit is I try all kinds of weird things. So I will speak into a microphone about what I know uh, on the subject to kind of see if I've got a story yet. Or I will quickly write down what I think the outline is. And then that gives me a sense of like, okay, yeah, you you do actually have a bit of a story here in terms of what this research is saying, or you don't, you know, you, you need to go back and find more. Because I think we, it can be quite easy to just keep reading more and more and not really informing your, your argument enough. Um, and so I think it's very important to balance the reading with some form of uh, output whether that's speaking or whether it's just writing you know not for academic purposes and actually right I've got to update a paper uh, for publication fingers crossed and my approach there is I'm using the comments section a lot so it's too overwhelming uh, you know to just go straight into the actual paper and write academically so I'm formulating my arguments in the comments and that's my first stage and then I will start to actually construct the the sentences that are you know the academic sentences. Yeah I think even like the scientific language it's like whoa like when I well first for me English is not my first language. So I remember even looking back on some of the essays that I was writing in the first year, I'm like, oh my gosh, like what, <laughs> like how did I do that? Um, but like learning that language, I think that's, and it's so scientific, like even now I have, which is the next topic I will touch on, self-regulation. I have huge book of like self-regulation and it, it takes me so long just to read like one page, just to understand it fully. Um, and it's like so much information. And so like when it comes to self-regulation, um, can you maybe define what it is and maybe what's the difference between like self-regulation and self-control? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if we have the same book, by the way. I've got the Handbook of Self-Regulation by Bowmaster and all. Don't know if that's yeah, what I think you've got I have the as your one. book. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> um, so... Let me start with the distinction between self-regulation and self-control, because I think that's interesting. Um, the way I see self-control is more like self-discipline. So it is being able to exert uh, a, a will over your you know, task and therefore control uh, your behavior, right? Um, the way I see self-regulation in comparison to that is that you 
you you you you it includes and the definition does include self um self control so people who have higher levels of self control do have higher levels of self regulation but there is uh it's there's a recognition that control alone uh can get depleted and so you actually want a whole you want the ability to regulate all aspects of your emotional uh, your attentional um and your you could probably say other states as well physical states as well um and so there's more flexibility in actually then sort of managing your state so that you can achieve your outcomes and so if i was to give a real life example um if it was if i was talking about say not using your phone let's let's talk about the digital so if i if i've got my phone in front of me and i just sort of say nope don't don't use it and i and i keep working i'm exerting self control right if i if i say actually no i want to start to regulate myself around this i would say okay so i could, i'm noticing there is a need for me to pick up my phone here i'm feeling bored with my work i want an easy fix i'm aware of that okay what else can meet that need maybe i can go for a walk how else can i meet that need and i can actually then you know not not deplete myself whereas if i'm going to if i keep repressing that emotion eventually when this the the tray of sweets comes along i'll be like give me all of them because i've used up my willpower Basically. I was about to ask you where so, does the willpower come in this equation? <laughs> yes, and so I put um self-control, self-discipline and willpower all in one camp. Yeah. And they're not to be they're not bad like they they're great things, right? Uh and they're a limited resource and you've probably are very aware of ego depletion, right? Yeah. And the the that depleting effect and the these things can be depleted. Um self regulation is more of a muscle it, in, it incorporates those things but it also it, it's also more flexible you know kind of it it is about working with your systems and uh like addressing your different needs so that you can then manage them the other thing about self regulation is that you can you can build that muscle up right so you can do there are lots of studies academic studies which show different uh activities which just over time build your self regulation funny things like um well exercise is an obvious one but other funny ones like checking your posture has been correlated with increasing your self regulation because you're building awareness and then you are starting to do more self monitoring because self monitoring is part of the self regulatory process I was also so, reading like two Now things. I'm very open to I'm very open because I know this is an area of um interest to you and so you might say well that's funny but i read this and i'm open to that because actually i was researching this in a lot of depth probably last year yeah. and so you know i may well i may well have missed something there and i'd be open to being yeah i was about to on, ask on. you um i i read in a book which was for me it was it makes sense but also it was interesting one thing was that with the in that book it was more about willpower and how you can train that willpower as a muscle um pretty much like similar concept and one thing was meditation even if it's like 5 minutes a day which makes sense because you're becoming aware of your thoughts and you can learn to control your thoughts then you can learn to control yourself as well with time but another one that i found really interesting was like 5 minute relaxation at the end of the day where you just relax for like 5 minutes i don't remember exactly what was the explanation behind it 
Um, but I'm really curious on your thoughts about how would it, if it's something that you would agree or not, um, if you have read any like science behind it, uh, because for me, it was like, wow, I, I didn't, I, I like to connect the dots. And in that moment, I don't think I was fully able to connect the dots specifically to this one. Yeah, well, I think it's good to go back to some of the definitions, and I may or may not answer your question. So let me know. Um, mindfulness has also been defined as the regulation of attention, right? Because mindfulness is not about controlling your attention. Yeah. So it's actually about by regulating your attention in mindfulness, you're not you're you're not everywhere you're not too broad and you're also not completely focused it's it's a regulated thing and this is why I love the word regulation because it's actually about a continual rebalancing that is happening so the debt when I looked into self-regulation and mindfulness I was very interested in how closely the two definitions at one point I was making the argument that they were almost being defined as the same thing it's just that self-regulation probably happens over a longer period of time than mindfulness and mindfulness is more focused on attention than necessarily uh, your emotional regulation, which is another component of self-regulation. So I just think it's nice to start there and think about that definition of regulation of attention, self-regulation and mindfulness. They, to me, they're all related. And I can totally see because self-control is one component of self-regulation. I can totally see how that would be strengthened through the practice of meditation. And I guess the question is, you know, control is great, you know, the ability to control our thinking, but at some point that will relimit, you know, at some point your ability to control your will reach a limit. Whereas if you're able to regulate yourself, it's almost like you, it's almost like you can flap in the wind and you, you know, and be resilient. Whereas if you're, having to control you know at some point the dam will burst you know and that's how I think of the two things differently so with the regulation um is it I, I don't want to ask if it's like a limited resource but like the way you explained it it sounds like when it comes to self-control you in a way really restrict yourself until you break but with self-regulation it's like more um flexible in that way yeah and because self-regulation includes emotional regulation attentional regulation and I've also seen definitions that include like our physiological regulation you know because our body is in a constant state of regulation as well with the hormone systems temperature as well there are so many aspects of regulation going on just to kind of maintain an equilibrium and so so yeah okay um can you give any advice when it comes to like emotional control? Because I think there's so many people that, well, first, they're not even aware of their emotions and how much their emotions actually control their actions. Um, and secondly, they just don't know. Like once they are aware, they're like, well, yeah, I get angry at this or that, but I can't control it. They have this like, um, they are so certain that this is just the way I am. I just can't change it. Yeah, this is this is fantastic because this is what I end up working on a lot with clients and you would be surprised in leadership roles how important emotional regulation is. It it is one of the things that most frequently comes up um especially with my male clients. 
Um, so, so it's really interesting. And what, what we do is we, we really try and break down the, the area that they're trying to regulate. And it could be like certain reactions that they're having in meetings. It could be often it is related to, I guess, some form of loss of loss of control, you know, loss of temper or whatever it is. Um, and emotional regulation, there is a model by Grossman. I think he was one of the main guys who was looking at emotional regulation and he breaks down the stages. There's a, there's a first reaction and then there's subsequent responses. And that is always really important to kind of share with clients when they're trying to address this, that your first reaction is often your first reaction. Yes, over time, you may well, and if you, especially if you're dedicated to the practice of things like meditation, you know, you may well start to even be able to affect that first response. But let's, let's not fixate on that first response. Let's fixate on the follow-up responses, the coping strategies, what's in our toolkit to then manage that response. And that's the secondary, it's almost like your secondary response. That's where it gets really exciting. That's where we've got a lot of control in the short term. So, you know, if you're to, to your person who says, oh, I can't help it. It's just the way I am. I'll say, yeah, probably your natural uh, state is one where you are more fiery um, than, than others. And that has good, good things and bad things. You might be more sensitive. You might be more excitable. You might be more passionate. All of these things, you know, they might be your, your, your traits and things. Just recognizing that then allows you to develop a really good set of strategies to address those reactions. And that's where your regulation comes in. And so then often it becomes about how quick is your recovery? How quickly can we get you back to a good state, a state that allows you to do your work that is not self um, deprecating because there's often then quite a lot of like uh, rumination and you know mulling things over and and these are things which really affect my clients you know and I I'm aware that they're struggling with reverting back to kind of like a normal good state um, so yeah does that does that answer your question yeah and like even going further when once they have that let's let's say they have had this reaction that they didn't want to have um, maybe as I was thinking, it's like, it's as if they keep carrying this like situation or emotion with them. So maybe what, what role does letting go play in this like equation? Yeah, that is, I mean, I'm actually reading right now effortless, um, find the author's name for you, but it is all about sometimes the letting go being the easier path. Um, and so, you know, wonderful by Greg McEwen. Um, it is, it's a wonderful, I think you would love it based on, on what we've talked about so far, but it is all about, you know, in that moment, is there, is there a more effortless path and letting go is often part of that. But I, when I'm working one-to-one with people, I don't want to force letting go as the first solution because I actually think it takes time to get to that point. And I yeah. think it can be frustrating initially uh, if you can't let go, just like you said, like you're almost frustrated that you got angry in the first place. So it's almost your reaction that you, you don't want. And I, I want to normalize the reactions. I want, you know, we'll do personality assessments. So we know that these are likely to be their reactions, you know? And so 
that that's fine, but let's figure out how we work with that. Yeah. Um, another thing is that uh, this is more like from my own experiences, how I usually try to explain people when it comes to like regulating your emotions. I was about to say controlling, but I think it's more like regulating um, because like, I think I have worked on myself and my awareness so long that let's say if you say something and it triggers me, I am really aware of that. And there's like really small gap where I either decide to act on it or not. And I think the more aware you become of yourself and the more you work on yourself, the bigger that gap gets where you actually can make that decision that actually stop. I will think what I am feeling, what's the emotion, whether it's like worth to actually take this action or it's just me like being impulsive. Um, So like, is there any, I don't know, scientific explanation behind that because I haven't looked into like science behind it but it's something that I have noticed within myself and also some of my clients have said that they they kind of understand that concept when I explain it and even when they look back and reflect they are able to see that when it happened Um, but they are not in a place where they might be able to control it yet or like um, be able to change it up yeah yeah no you there there are lots of things go um that are coming up there for me there's reflective practice there's kahneman think fast think slow and he talks about the experiencing self uh versus the other cells versus like the reflecting self um and i'm just trying to think with all of the mindfulness literature because there is so much of it the extent to which they discuss detachment i i think there is a lot actually around the detaching from, uh, you know, emotions, because that is a big part of what you're describing, right? The ability to depersonalize, the ability to separate. And it's a, apparently it's, it's, you know, only us humans that are able to do this, to get ourselves into this state where we can actually observe our own thinking and say, oh, I'm feeling like this right now. Ooh, I'm noticing that I am really triggered by this. Um, so my, I believe there is a lot of research there, but I can't quote you a paper right now. Um, but I think it's interesting that it also comes up in the reflective practice literature a lot, because that is all about the benefits of whichever practice you choose, um, increasing that. I'm really, I'm conscious of the sun, by the way. <laughs> should I, I'm not sure if I should draw the Wait, that'll curtain. pause it. You can change it. Um, yeah, so where did we leave? I, I forgot. I was so focused on yeah so uh we were just talking about the the gap and detachment and you know that separation from ourselves um and that ability to create uh that second response no it's a great question and I'm pretty sure that that it's in it's implicit in a lot of this regulation literature as well um and i and just going back to our example once more about the phone and the the way that you would treat the two things differently you know the person who's working on their self-regulation would say would really their first step is awareness the first part of the baumeister you know he's got his four steps of of self-regulation the first part of that is awareness and monitoring because you know you can you can just push the phone away but you haven't really addressed your triggers there you haven't addressed your internal triggers and so you haven't really done anything to strengthen you know your responses in the future and in some ways you've just taxed yourself 
Um, and this goes, I mean, you're, you're probably really aware of all of this, but um, there is so much that can deplete us, right? In our, right. you know, whether it's like a noise when we're trying to work or whether it's like a stressful conversation. And so if we rely solely on that ability to control, then we're not, we're not, when things get tough and difficult, we're, we're going to, we're going to struggle to bounce back. Whereas if we take more of that regulatory approach, it just allows us to listen to our needs more and make sure that we're satisfying some of those needs. Yeah. So I think um, self-regulation also goes hand in hand with coping strategies. Yeah, like even coping that, strategies that the awareness where let's say with depletion, let's say if somebody is wanting to be healthy or make like healthy choices, if you know that if you go to shop in the evening where you have like you're pretty much run out of your energy, then you probably will make less good choices. Um, and I think being aware of those things and then adjusting your actions accordingly, like usually the way I describe awareness is that if you were in a dark room and I would throw you a ball, like you wouldn't be able to catch it. Like you just can't, you just can't see it. But then like once you switch the light on, like you, you can see the ball and you can catch it. So it's the same with like self-awareness, like you can't really change behaviors that you're not even aware of or that you don't notice. And like, I know it's been helpful for me to just reflect a lot. Like, let's say um, when it comes to training, if I know that I don't have any results, I have to sit down and reflect. And then I see, well, actually, I, I, I just didn't put as much in or like when it comes to work or when it comes to like my self-development and certain things that I work on, I'm like, well, and like a lot of times we which is another interesting thing um, that we're like with what I was reading about habit tracking and uh, becoming aware of like your execution with habits, because I think many times people are like, well, I am doing my habits, but you don't actually know how many of them you do. So let's say out of two weeks, you might do like five days. It, it's, it's already more than you usually do. So you're like, well, actually I'm doing pretty good. Like I'm being like consistent with my habits, but I have no results. But like you don't have the data to actually show how much you execute or how much you don't execute. And what I was reading is that a lot of times we we think that we are doing better than we actually are. And that's where it's important that you have some kind of data come in that you can actually see that, okay, this week added only like, I don't know, two days out of five. And then you're not surprised for not getting results. Otherwise, you feel like, well, I'm actually taking some action but I don't get results. And then you get like frustrated and then you quit. So like, that's yeah, something I love that, that I've seen. Yeah, I love that. So what, what you're saying is that often we don't have a full picture when we think something's not succeeding because we haven't tracked it. We've just gone on, you know, what we think we're doing. And this relates a lot to my nutrition partner who I used to do my podcast with. And, you know, her first thing is always like, you need to do a food diary because, and when you do the food diary, I need to know how much water you're actually drinking. And most of the time people don't know how much water they're actually drinking. Yeah. And same with screen time. So I've recently been coaching people on their deep work and distraction. And one of my clients, said to me oh you know I'm, I'm I, my habits with the phone are shocking and I was like okay what what's what is the screen time saying how many pickups are you doing so I'm oh I don't know actually I didn't even know that that was there and that's not a bad thing but for me the first the first step is raising our awareness of of the habit by putting some metrics around it um and then also just your analogy of, you know, the supermarket when you're tired or hungry or whatever. And the same thing for me with the phone is that 
for, you know, if I happen to have a phone with me in the bedroom before bed, which I sometimes do because my meditation app is on there. So I have a bit of a tricky, I haven't resolved this yet, yeah. but I can suddenly find myself Maybe you just can play mindless- in a different room. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. The, the only thing I've managed to do is Bluetooth headphones. Yeah, I was about to say so getting that. the Bluetooth headphones. Yeah, um, that requires it. All it requires is a conversation like this, you know, because often we just need to do that little conversation. And and it, we we've got a quick fix that yeah. was pretty, pretty much almost there, but we hadn't quite put it into practice. Yeah. So now that we've had that conversation, there's no excuses. <laughs> um, but, but if I have found myself with it in the, in the bedroom, then I will see that I just, I'm mindless because at that hour I'm mindless. in the morning. I'm, I'm not mindless and I'm actually nowhere near my phone. So again, like you said, knowing when you're depleted. And the other thing is that when, when clients say to me, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit lazy. And I say, well, I don't think you're lazy. I think you're just depleted. Because most of us know when we are just anything's possible, we can accomplish anything. And then there are other times when everything feels hard. And to me, it's just that's one of those energy management things. So is that yeah. like a way how to, well, sounds aggressive, but like push through those times when you feel depleted, but you have to perform like, or maybe have you helped any of your clients with that when they they have this like really important period when they are really depleted, but they have to perform at their best. Like how, what's like the best way to approach that kind of situation? Yeah. I mean, it, that is actually hard because often things will fall away then. So they will then not turn up for their coaching. I mean, it's not often that I have no shows, but we will try and schedule the coaching so that it doesn't fall during those crazy periods. Because I, you know, I, the clients that I have, they, they will get, really really busy and I have full empathy that during those periods I'm not going to say to them look you know keep keep doing your exercise keep doing sleep because I've been in that position myself when small kids work in my case also doing the masters and it was just like look I am struggling to find 20 minutes in the day to do exercise so my first thing is that I try and make sure that in those periods we say look let's just let's treat this as a limited window and let's do damage limitation yeah as the first thing if we can do more great but let's just start with we don't need here to be doing all of our best stuff right and then it will just be really simple things like can you do one phone call as a walk can you can you pick one other thing that you from your coping toolbox because I do spend a lot of time with clients figuring out what's in their toolbox for coping strategies can you do one other one of those things that you you know because actually when we when we develop the um the coping toolbox and their strategies uh for this I do always say to them do you think you can do this on your worst day in your worst week because that's always my test with my clients I'm quite I guess I'm quite cynical in that way. I want the things that we agree on. I want them to be easy and I want them to be the things that they can even do when things go crazy because it's all great when when life is normal, right? But for a lot of them, their normal is actually not that normal. Like <laughs> actually yeah. their normal is a big wave coming and things are crazy. So I want to make sure that what we're agreeing is stuff that is going to be viable even then, if you know what I mean. So I think like in a way it can even like a little thing to still feel that sense of control even during that time if they're able to do this like one thing. 
Yeah. So, and so one, like a very simple one thing is like, you know, after your presentation, they'll tell me, I said to them, what's your, what's your routine after your presentation that you'll do? They'll say, oh, well, normally I will get out for a quick walk or I'll go and chat to a colleague or I'll, you know, whatever their normal is. Okay. So, well, within that, so you're going to do the same thing, but can you now also just say, say three things that went well? Yeah. So you're just being grateful for three things. So it doesn't change. They're not having to do anything new they're still going to have a conversation with their colleague they're still going to go for a walk they're still going to do their planner but they're just going to add those things in so that would be a very simple thing that is like you said that little bit of control um because we're not trying to do like as you were speaking you said about like three things that happened is there like any kind of where i was thinking if there's a place where sport uh, not sports psychology the positive psychology can come in and actually add to those like times when you have this like intense schedule yeah um well there are a lot of the ppis which are the positive psychology interventions and we we actually tested a lot of these you know on ourselves when we were particularly stressed so um i feel like i know which ones are doable and not doable when you're really up against it which is often when you're doing a master's you know it's at at your worst but three good things is from positive psychology right and that is a hugely well-known one because it links into gratitude gratitude as we know is like you know that everyone's mad for gratitude now and rightly so it is an incredible way of rewiring but what I love are the derivations of three good things so the one that I've been talking about recently um, and some of my research students have been using in their um, academic studies and research is three funny things so mm-hmm. what you do is and this is for organizations is you share three funny things that have happened that day or that week and it's tapping into humor which is another area that has been looked into now is under underutilized but you know can trigger all the good positive emotions broaden and build lightness um and so I think that's really fresh. Like I've been talking about three good things for a long time, but I think it's really fresh to have a humor intervention that is really practical because we all probably think we could benefit from laughing more, but what in practice, you know, what, what is it that you can do? And what I love about that. So I put that one into practice. What I love about that one is that just like with three good things, you start to be on the lookout for the good things during the day. You you naturally, your seeking system goes to these things. And just like that, with the three funny things, you start to be on the lookout for funny things. And so yeah. it just changes your outlook. And so there's a rewiring going on there. Uh, but there's loads, there's loads of other um, interventions um, from positive psychology that I think, like, we could with the think humor, about. I mean, so savoring. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like the savoring intervention. So like going for 20 minute walks and savoring. um, I I, I love those because anything that is sort of to do with nature and savoring is an area that is explored a lot in in positive psychology. Um, And to me, it is actually a form of positive regulation. So positive self-regulation, because the natural response may be to rush through the experience, but by savoring, you are intentionally putting yourself into that positive state and experiencing those positive aspects of, of you know, whatever you're doing. That's a form of regulation. That's a form of self-regulation. And this is why 
I, maybe you and I both love self-regulation because grit is also a form of self-regulation. So like the yeah. definition in that handbook of grit is basically like extended self-regulation over time in the face of obstacles, you know? Yeah. And so this is why I, I keep coming back to self-regulation in positive psychology. Yeah, I think like, even like from my own experience, I think like even taking responsibility for where you are and then taking action towards like changing it you when you work on yourself and controlling yourself regulating yourself um i usually use control because that's usually what people can understand better like not many people are aware of the word like self-regulation um and like when you learn to do that when you are in control of yourself you first you feel more confident because you know that you can deal with certain situations or like even like you start to trust yourself more as well that you can actually handle this um and that's something that i have seen within myself and i tell everybody it's like okay if you're not happy with let's say your relationship work on yourself first um and getting control of yourself your emotions and things like that because uh i had a conversation with one of my clients who is um, working on emotions and i said to her like we are both having conversation and we have no arguments so a lot of times it takes one person to have good communication because then you might talk to somebody else and you might feel angry. So like it's one person that's changing, but a lot of times it's enough to have one person to have good communication. Like even myself, I I don't even remember when is the last time when I would be like arguing with somebody and being like all like shouting and everything is like flying around. Like I, I have never had that kind of um, experience and it's not because I'm... Um, I don't have emotions. It's it's more because I learned to maybe, which is another thing I would want you to talk about is to deal with my ego, maybe set my ego aside um, several times when it's like something triggers me and I'm like, well, maybe that is true. So why would I have to go and attack somebody back for something that they said that it's true? Maybe the way they said it wasn't accurate or it wasn't nice, but I can't really tell them it's not true because deep down I know it's true. <laughs> so like working with ego, I think it's so important. And like maybe you have any tips or maybe what's the importance of working with ego or what's the role that ego plays and how you can actually kind of learn to get that ego in control. <laughs> yeah, I, I it's interesting that you've used the word control there for the ego, right? Uh, whereas what I would, uh, I, I think what you're saying is, is very important and it's very easy to sink, to get caught back up in the ego, right? Like I noticed that with myself. And so then how do you bring yourself back? And one of the things that this is more from a personal perspective um, is just reconnecting to purpose because purpose is hopefully, you know, not just about you, right? It's about how you want to impact other people. Um, and, you know, the, the positive change that you want to be able to facilitate in the world. And so to me, that alone just puts you into a different space. Um, so that's one kind of simple thing. The other one that I have been practicing more because I had an, uh, in my own podcast conversation with uh, someone who sort of specializes this in, in outdoor intelligence. So making sure that when you do do your walks, so for a lot of us, those have become very vital, those, you know, walks during lockdown, etc. cetera. Um, but when you're doing that, to have some time that is purely connecting with nature um, and 
in my coaching, I do a lot of systemic coaching. So with, within the organization, what is the system you're part of? How do you work with that system rather than just on your own? Uh, recognizing that we are all like the product of a system and that I would even actually go as far as to say, you know, because positive psychology is now saying that perhaps they've got to become too individualized um, and it's almost too much pressure on the self for self-development. And so actually recognizing that we're part of a wider system can take that pressure off ourselves. It can mean that it doesn't mean that you therefore sit back and do nothing, but you figure out what you can influence within that, how you can work with the system and therefore it's kind of better for everybody. Um, and so just then coming back to your your thing about ego, uh, just that 10 minutes in nature being part of the system, again, I think is another physical way, quite an embodied way of kind of getting out of your normal thinking, which might become increasingly ego-driven as the day goes on um, and just reconnecting with that wider system that you're part of. And as I'm saying that, I'm, rem I'm remembering one of my favorite meditations on this Aura app. And it literally, at, at night, it helps you kind of dissolve your layers away of the day. And one of those layers is your ego. And it actually talks about dissolving that and dissolving your to-dos. And so I, I really enjoy um, engaging with all of those practices. Um, does that, there was something else that you mentioned when it came to ego, um, I can't remember I know, like, now, maybe, I think when maybe. it comes to ego many times like even what I have noticed is that even when you mentioned like that the people are being really individualized or things like that I think it's important to understand that um, even like becoming less focused or like self-centered that pretty much like the world is like circling around you and like you're at the center of like the world and things like that um or if, uh, another thing i think that comes in mind is expectations um and like maybe you can explain the link between like ego and expectations because i believe there is some kind of link because let's say when you expect people to treat you a certain way or do certain things for you you have this like ego that like you're supposed to treat me this way but it doesn't mean that you actually deserve or have earned this kind of treatment. Mm. Ah, yes. And, and that does connect to the other point I really wanted to make as you were talking. So let me just make that point and see if that even starts to address what you're talking about. So the other thing when it comes to relationships and ego and how other people's behaviors affect us and vice versa uh, is that often as part of this sort of tendency we have to personalize we we interpret other people's actions towards us as you know deliberately towards us whereas actually it's a manifestation of them yeah oh yeah so I just think that plays into this conversation as well because most of the time if you are consistent right if you have your boundaries about how you operate you've chosen listen I'm always going to be these are, these are my boundaries. This is how I want to operate in the world. I want to be fair. These are my values. This is how I want to treat people. This is how I, you know, this is how I am going to go forth in the world. If you are consistently like that, but you then get an individual that is sort of, you know, hurting you in some way or kind of causing some discomfort in your mind, the chances are they are in pain or they are in some form of, um, 
conflict with themselves right um and so just recognizing that and saying hold on i haven't really probably done anything here particularly uh, but i'm experiencing this you know from this individual i think that can be really powerful um and then you know i in those situations i i don't think one should just absorb because it's really you know like this is something that they look at in positive psychology as well to say listen you sh- positivity is not always appropriate right uh, in domestic abuse for example positivity forgiveness all of these things they are not appropriate you know uh, the emotions of anger and other negative emotions have a very very important p- function right so i'm not saying that you just absorb somebody else's misery because you know and you yeah. take their you know take it for them but just appreciating why you are experiencing some of that from their actions can just help you in the way you navigate those relationships and either it can help to normalize because they like okay well this person is always fair and they can go through their own journey and when they've gone through their journey um they may well be like oh great you know this person was always consistent in there and fair and and decent to me um or or maybe they never will and it's not un- it's not for you to control um but but so anyway i just wanted to put that out there because that does come up a lot like i often am coming in when people are having very problematic relationships at work and or there could be you know a personal relationship but probably where i see it more is in the workplace and if i have had say two or three sessions with a client and they've got a problematic relationship in the workplace and after three sessions the the pattern is still very strongly demonstrating itself the chances are that like 6 months on that person that they're working with is is no longer in the organization because and this is based on literally my experience of many many different clients is that often it's because they're working with a very difficult character and that difficult character is going through their own difficulties and is actually not going to survive in the organization so i think it can be very helpful to remember um when we experience negative stuff from others um, that it's probably because of their own internal pain. Yeah. I, think, like, I just wanted also, to throw that in there. I think it's also important to keep in mind that that has been really helping me when it comes to communication, that um, there's a reason why people act a certain way. A lot of times it has nothing to do with you. That's like, even like when somebody gets angry, that might be just a coping mechanism that they have learned that actually works for them. It doesn't have to do like anything with you or and like even like a bit of detachment as well, where to be able to maybe detach a bit emotionally from that like situation as it's happening. I think it takes a lot of practice to get to that place. But I know that for me, it's been helpful to first um, check within myself how I feel if there's something that they say that is triggering me and then like work with that as they are speaking or shouting whatever they are doing um but also as they speak listen if whether whatever they are saying let's say if that's actually relevant if that's actually true so let's say oh if i don't wash my dishes and you shout at me well that's that's like it's pretty much a fact so i can't really argue back at that maybe i can argue on the way they deliver the message but the message is pretty much true um but if it's not true then i would probably work towards understanding whether i'm understanding it wrong or maybe in my perception it's not true 
but it's actually true in their perception. And I think it's, and I had a conversation in the previous episode um, about that it's important, let's say in relationship when you argue, actually make sure that you understand the person right, instead of assuming, I know what you're thinking, you are this way and things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and as you are saying that, I'm I'm also thinking that one of the best things that you can do in the situation that you described is just say, uh, you know, I'm noticing that you're you're already angry here. I can I'm noticing and I'm noticing that your react your reaction is actually making me, you know, quite stressed here. And that I mean, to get to that point is very it's not going to happen overnight. But oh, yeah. it's even before you've uh, I think you like know, even Astra telling them that the you are being herself. angry. I think you can just trigger them even more if you point out that you're being angry. <laughs> you can you can but or you could say look i'm noticing you're upset here yeah. right so it comes from more of a place of empathy because actually anger is often just you know people have sort of you know lost control of their emotions yeah. and they're feeling rage and so they actually deserve i mean i say this because i have a four-year-old so i when it comes to him you know he's been my biggest teacher because i so actually this is another thing that plays in here is with the, the chimp paradox has been a very useful book both in managing my son and also for my clients they found it really helpful so the chimp paradox if you've not come across it is a, is a great oh, book and it does actually you have have you yeah. yeah yeah and again it goes into you know you were talking before about ego and the different types of the brain and things like that or how we detach ourselves and I find that the chimp piece can be a really really useful way of detaching so, you know, I would say to my son, you know, okay, so your chimp seems really upset right now. You know, what, what does your chimp need? And, and he really relates to that. I think maybe as, as when you're young, you can be quite um, visual or, you know, you've got a good imagination. So it really makes sense to him, but it works for clients as well, because they're like, oh, I understand now why they are, you know, this person always gets triggered and acts out now. It's like, I can see how their chimp is reacting, then how my chimp reacts to their chimp. And, you know, so because when somebody's chimp goes, then the other person's chimp gets <laughs> activated yeah. as well. So it's like, you know, in your angry dishwashing conversation, it's like, I can see that your chimp is out right on that about these dishes. And actually that is now triggering my chimp. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is always going to be a possible conversation but just where it is or even being able to articulate these things in ourselves it can be really helpful before we even try and solve a problem it can almost it can diffuse things it can diffuse the problem so uh, that's what I advocate first because then the situation is very hard to know what what was going on in the situation what triggered them to be angry what's gone on but just to be able to say, I can see that you, you know, you're upset, or and and actually that's making me now, you know, that alone um, often is not said in no. in in tricky conversations. And when it is, it can bring a lot more awareness into that conversation and make it a more productive conversation. Um, yeah, it's yeah. Like, even like I think what you said about the chimp. Um, I think one really big thing that it's helping with is to kind of take out the eye of equation where it's not like me where you don't take it as personally you're just like this is the chimp it's not like me it's a chimp side of me so that's when you are able to make and when you tell it to somebody else they're like oh that's my chimp like it's it, it's like you don't maybe offend them as much or maybe not trigger them as much because they're aware that okay this is just a chimp it's not like me at the core who is like me 
And like another thing I wanted to ask you um, as you were speaking was there's really thin line, I think, between um, emotional, like regulating your emotions and suppressing them. So like how you distinguish them or how you maybe um, make sure you don't suppress the emotions, because I think that's when it doesn't get any better when you start like suppressing them. Yeah. And this goes back to, you know, the, the, that thing in the wind, you know, the tree in the wind versus just being pushed and pushed and pushed. And then at some point it snaps. Right. Um, So, so actually, you know, the, the kind of the more expressive, slightly louder, more angry person, they, they, they might actually be fine. And it's the, the, the quiet absorbing people who at some point might just snap, right? Because they are used to kind of absorbing, but at some point they might snap. So um, this is, to me, this is the heart of um, control versus regulation is that there is with control, there is some form of suppression going on. You're overriding something. Whereas in regulation, you allow that need to be felt, experienced, and heard, and then you decide what the course of action is. And so you meet the need, um, and that's the critical difference. So obviously, we we may we we may want to do a bit of both, but if we only control and suppress then at some point we might explode. Whereas if we keep regulating, we're continuously in some form of balance, even if we at any point are kind of in a, you know, more of a flux. One thing that I have learned myself with emotions was, maybe you can speak a bit more on this, is that um, like you, you want to feel emotions, but you don't want to identify with them. So let's say if I'm feeling down and I'm crying, all the thoughts that come in my head and it took me a while to learn this. Um, they come in my head, but I don't identify with them because the moment I start identifying with them, it just goes down. Like I just get even worse and I cry more and then those thoughts trigger more crying. But then like once I approached it more, I, more like a detox process. Okay, I feel emotional. I want to cry. I cry it out. Um, I just let it go. And I just move on with my day like instantly. Um, so like how to, like, is there any... I don't know, science behind it? Or is that something that's like, I don't know, if common or um, because I know that it has been really helpful for me, just that shift towards how I perceive those like emotions. Yeah, well, I, I would say this is the heart of mindfulness, right? Because the, it's the ability to become more aware of what you're feeling without identifying it, become raise your ability to notice. Um, and, and you're exactly right. Like it doesn't happen overnight, but over time you can start to do that. So in my case, some really simple practices. Um, I listen to this aura app before bed and don't get me wrong. Sometimes I just conk out when I put it on. <laughs> I haven't done any meditation, but other times I really value that um, shift in state. Um, and another one is I haven't been drinking alcohol. And so that's been about, I think it's been like more than a hundred days now that I haven't had any alcohol, but I am massively aware of the, this, these things going on in my head, like every Thursday night, it's like, 
time for a drink Maya <laughs> and I but I'm not I, I don't identify with it anymore it's just like it's just it just comes and I watch it and I'm like oh well, that's quite funny and like I just don't actually exactly as you said I don't get sucked in by it I just notice it because apparently and this addiction is fascinating um, and it is obviously related to self-regulation as well so people with higher reg- self-regulation and they're going to be less susceptible to um, addiction and that's in in the research there's a lot of correlations there Uh, but you know with addiction you have these cravings and craving is your neural pathways wanting to be reinforced and actually the fact that you've got the craving means that they are worried about not being reinforced so they they could at that moment that is your moment right having the craving is not the bad thing having the craving is is actually a sign that you are going to be like your 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 neural pathway wants to be reasserted right and and your decision then is like do you reinforce the grooves or do you manage to sidestep those through a mixture of methods distraction coping mindfulness all of the practices that are in your toolkit uh, for doing that anyway we might we might be um going off on a tangent there but i do think it's interesting how all of these things are related (laughs) Uh, even like and and you know i just think yeah go ahead yeah no and self-regulation is at the heart of them right you know it's in the middle of you know these the way we emotionally regulate with others and on the other side our you know ability to be addicted or not addicted to things and and notice how our patterns uh, then unfold and so if we are then trying to change a habit exactly as you said to be able to disidentify from some of the feelings that come up when we're trying to change those is going to give us so much more power to affect those another thing that i uh, i noticed one time when i was in gym i think it was like it was before all the lockdowns um you even i, I was even starting to play games um where let's say i'm about to do the last set and i have this voice in my head being like yeah but you already did all you had to do like just just take a day off, not like day off, but like, just leave it there. And I would literally be like telling myself, is that all you have? Like, <laughs> is that your only argument? So in a way you start to play those games with yourself. Um, and which is another thing that I wanted to uh, mention earlier about like humor, um, where like, I think it's, even when I work with my clients, a lot of times it's, I try to introduce them with idea to be able to, um, even like laugh at themselves and have fun while they are growing because you don't have to beat yourself up for like where you are. You can actually enjoy the process and you can learn along the way and have fun as you do it. And you will get results either way. But um, the difference is that as you get towards those results, you can feel miserable or you can actually have fun and enjoy it. This is why I think you're going to love this book, Effortless. Um, I, it is such a revelation because, you know, I have to say that I am, I probably, I, I'm probably quite hard, like I work too hard. I mean, I'm quite good about balance. Like, so then at the, you know, I know my cutoff and I've always sort of balanced life, but, you know, just, I've always felt like, you know, yeah, like put the work in. Um, and this book is all about taking like whatever you decide is essential and then making that fun and effortless and joyful and pairing it perhaps with like a treat um so you know you're doing your treadmill but you're listening to your favorite podcast I mean some of it's simple stuff we know but I mean I think wrapped up in like a lot of these self-help books are all going to be you know similar 
concepts of the moment rather in different ways and they're going to appeal to us at different times so this has come for me at just the right time when I was just thinking I just feel like I'm putting a little bit too much effort in to everywhere you know and I just need to I just need life to feel a bit lighter um so I think like you said if you can make some of those processes feel more wonderful, then all the better. And so one of the things he talks about is uh, ritual and he defines ritual as habits with soul. And so the idea is that if you're going to do some of these practices, which you know are kind of your, your essential practices, if you can infuse them with soul and things that are essentially you, then th that process can be really joyful. So like my, I think about my morning routine. So, you know, hands up, haven't been waking up at 5am for the last couple of weeks, but generally I am in the 5am club and it's when I get my deep work done. And I'm quite proud of that morning, those morning rituals. And they really do feel like rituals now. They're quite slow and there's like the, the making the coffee and it's it just a very specific time of the day and the, the the teeth brushing washing your face like even just washing your face and putting your creams on and stuff like this yeah. all become a bit of a ritual for me um and and the pace of it and so i i really relate to that idea that and and i know that basically once i've gone through that ritual i have set myself up for two hours of like the best work of my the day that is going to happen um but it has felt because of maybe it's all about the coffee, <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's got this amazing coffee in it. It's, it's something that I look forward to, you know, in the morning. So, yeah. I think I, uh, I don't really drink coffee, but for me, it's really similar where even just thinking about getting up, making my bed, brushing teeth, that's like the first few triggers that I have of like waking up. And like, even I recently rejoined the 5am club, um, and even like I started 5am when I was like 10 years old, um, I was just like waking up and doing my own workouts. But uh, recently when I rejoined, one thing that I uh, noticed, so like every day I would post a story that I'm up at this time. But then I noticed that it was starting to disturb my sleep because I was like, oh my gosh, I can't oversleep because I have to post this picture. And like usually my mornings are offline where my phone is like on airplane mode. You can't reach me for like, I don't know, until like eight or nine. Um and that's something that was really disturbing my morning. So that's when I was like, okay, I will stop posting. I still going to do it, but I'm stopping to post it because that was just making it not enjoyable the way I enjoyed to do it, where you wake up and there's like no distractions. It's just like, and another thing is that nobody's up. So you're just by yourself. Everything is quiet. Nobody's like messaging you, bombarding you with messages. It's so amazing. I really enjoy like early mornings because that's, that's when pretty much I usually set myself up for the day. Um, and I feel, and also the time is passing by much slower because you have way less distractions, like pretty much no distractions. I'm so with you and I'm, I'm pleased that you, I'm, I love the way you refer to it. It's like I've rejoined the club and it's <laughs> as if we both know about this 5am club and, you know, whereas actually we haven't really talked about it before, but, you know, so even more recently, I, it, for me, it's been six. And so even when I get that one hour and 15 minutes, like you said, because time goes so slowly then that it's still worth it. Like it, I just, I still feel so much better by, by the afternoon in terms of where I am on my, um, my tasks and things. So I really, I'm with you there. And then you have also there touched on the other interesting topic, which is this sort of interaction between social media and 
you know, self-regulation life that we're also trying to cultivate and the way they interact. So I think you've touched on something very interesting there. And, you know, like you said, the morning is free of a lot of those distractions. And you, I guess, noticed that in trying to, um, you know, do that story or whatever, you, you obviously had the awareness that that wasn't really then uh, working with your values or, you know, what, what you wanted the morning to be about, right? So yeah. I think that's a great example of like experimenting and then adjusting. Um, and, you know, that's how you and I first connected, right? Um, on Clubhouse where yeah. you were talking about having a process and then evaluating. And I still, I really, what I love about when you mentioned that, so I had asked a question about, you know, when you're first starting on a new platform. So I think we were talking about video there and YouTube. And I was saying, you know, you just a bit demoralizing because you're like right at the beginning of it. And uh, how do you just, how do you be basically? And, you you know, you were saying, well, why don't you just um, focus on the process? Right. And actually going back to what you were saying about processes being joyful, I, I do enjoy, I enjoy creative aspects of social media. Like I have a natural, you know, I know some people, they just hate all of that, but I actually like that. So focusing on the process is not a bad thing. I like writing. I like coming up with captions. I like sharing what I consider to be either useful research or insights. Um, I love all of that. So you know, just what you said there about turning that into a process um, and then that being your measure, not outputs tomorrow kind of thing or reactions or whatever it is meant to be tomorrow, but more of a long-term thing, I think was really valuable. So just getting diverted there, but like just wanted to relate. Yeah, because like it's something that I also had myself, like before I posted my first post, like recently I think like a few months ago about this podcast I didn't post the last post I had was like September 2019 I didn't post at all I was like I just want to have my private life but then I understood that one shift that I had in my mind was that I started to just see it as like it's just a part of my job description I have to put myself out there. It's nothing personal. It's just part of the job. I have to appear on social media. Um, And like, even from that, I got like awesome connections, even with yourself, because like when you were asking that question, I'm like, wow, you actually like within that question, I'm like, you do a lot of research. I could just hear that you do a lot of research. And I'm like, okay, I have to, I have to have a conversation with you or have you on because um, like, even the way you would formulate the questions, I, I could instantly see that you're somebody who is like really well, well-educated, but also curious on like certain things that maybe many people might not even think about, which is pretty much the way I am. Um, I'm always like really curious about like so many things. <laughs> I really like to understand like human nature and like I've been in self-development for like 10 years now and I just keep testing things out. So like let's say when it comes early mornings um, or like social media, I know that I want to motivate people. I want to inspire people. Um, That's pretty much the only reason why I am on social media is to add value to other people. But if it is getting in my way of me moving ahead or me enjoying that time with myself, then I just, there's a point where I have to stop doing that. Um, Not in a way where I completely stop social media, but like this specific action that I wake up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You just cut out there for one minute. I, okay. I didn't quite hear so like, the end of what so you like said. So like usually in the mornings, like if 
that posting daily in the morning would get in pretty much disrupt my way my feeling of peace then I'm like okay I have to stop as much as I want and I, I was like oh my gosh I don't want others to perceive that I'm quitting or this and that but then I was like at some point you just have to set that aside and you have to put yourself first and your wants and needs first it doesn't mean that I'm stopping it but I'm just stopping to post about it because that was just for my own health because I really enjoy having even like several hours offline, let's say from five to nine, just completely offline where you just can't text me, you can't reach me. And I don't see any messages because if I wake up in the morning and I see some messages, I will think about them. <laughs> even if I'm not responding, I will think about them. Um, and like, maybe we, maybe you can talk about some of the research you have done with the social media and well-being because I think it's so important important especially nowadays where first off there's no nine to five job anymore you're on your phone all day um and there's like even like today i was reading some comments with people telling that about their challenges with like working from home and there's like family and some are like oh i have a lot of people around or somebody's like i have nobody around and then a lot of like distractions and how you deal with distractions where you have so many things. Um, so maybe you can ex get just jump in in your research that you have done, because I know you have done a lot of research about like this topic. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, there was so much that you said there that I wanted to pick up on. So just going back to what you were saying about how actually you realized social media is part of your job. And I just wanted to make the connection between that and what we were talking about earlier when it came to sort of ego and being able to detach ourselves, because there is this risk with social media that we over identify with it. And yet, yes, we can express our identities, definitely. And the research showed this a lot of papers found that it could help us express um, our personal narrative help with self-expression different forms of identity development um, so it can be really powerful like that but what you're doing by identifying that it's just part of your job description means you can actually professionalize this you know and you can schedule when you're going to use it how you're going to use it and you can detach from it and so yeah. it, I just like the parallel here and this is why I think all of these conversations are very related that you know being able to depersonalize your kind of job aspects there means that you can be more consistent and not have the emotional reactions and I was just having a conversation this week with a friend who sort of said look I've just got kind of too overwhelmed by it all and she knows that she needs to do it as part of her job because everybody in her industry does it um, and I think it can be very easy to kind of get confused because it's like we're all expected to do our own marketing today right you know because social media is so easy um, yeah. we're all expected to be marketeers now whereas you know in the past you would have said well actually that's not my skill set and I may need some help and support with the marketing aspect of my business for example but now it's so easy it's almost like you kind of you, you've got to do it uh, but setting the right boundaries around it is very important that's also what the, that ties in with the research so the research was looking at kind of optimal amounts of time which were good for well-being so it was in that 20 to 30 minute window of um, time per day zero was not helpful uh, because then you're disconnected it was only helpful for people who were sort of addicted or had problematic relationships um 
But there's so much in the research. I think for the purposes of this conversation, uh, the things that stand out are around this. It links in with the, what we've talked about when it comes to self-regulation. So building up our autonomy and building up our self-regulation means that we can better manage ourselves. So um, to me, getting to a place where you can do mindful scrolling when you go online and when you go on, you remember why you went onto your phone and you remember why you did yeah. the instruction <laughs> like you, you remember why you took the action and you go away and actually do that action that is a, is an achievement you know today given all the distractions these to me are actually really great forms of feedback because to me just like we were describing with alcohol to me re- really mastering a relationship with alcohol is not full abstinence because that's almost the easy bit. The, the, the difficult bit is the in- reintegration of it yeah. and how you manage that. And if you can do that well. Um, and likewise, I think the, you know, the real trick with um, social media is yes, definitely go and have your breaks when you're creating. So when I was doing my thesis, I was like, I just didn't, I just didn't use it. And it's like, it's fine. You know, who cares? But the, to me, the real art is actually getting like, very good with your self-regulation and the in and your mindfulness and your self-awareness when you use these technologies that to me is like the journey the growth journey um and the evidence the the research papers looked at how that impacts your well-being when you go online um and there's a there's a really interesting relationship there especially in the workplace so higher levels of mindfulness are linked to well-being effects from social media whereas lower mindfulness levels are linked to burnout so again it's you know it's all connected and i i could go into it in more detail but i'm I'm also conscious of time now um but i hope that like starts to touch on some of you know the different things that that are relevant when it comes to social media and and digital well-being um, with the with the social media, is it and and well being? Does is well being better when you have no social media or having some social media can actually benefit with that like well being? Yeah. So the studies that's what the studies showed. The studies showed that zero um, zero social media reduced well being okay. because it cut off connection, and then it was the limiting it was improved well being apart from those that had a more problematic relationship with social media for them complete abstinence did increase their well-being and there were other benefits as well so like things like misinformation and um you know this political polarization they also improved when it was limited Mm -hmm. or or reduced so I, I was actually really interested uh, by these studies about abstinence because it did show that p- complete abstinence did not improve well-being. Yeah, I had a time when I think it was like two years ago where I pretty much had like no social media. Um, I decided to take some time off and I would it wasn't just that I had the apps on the phone. I just deleted them. So I had pretty much the only thing I had was I think you also mentioned that in uh, in Clubhouse conversation that the. Uh, WhatsApp isn't seen as social media. So pretty much the only app that I had left was uh, WhatsApp. And it was really interesting because at some point I just, I just didn't feel the need for my phone. It was like, it was amazing feeling because I was able to actually be more present and get more done. But like at this point, it's, it's pretty much like part of my job. So I still have to be on social media. 
but I'm not in a place where I was like, I, I would say like almost four years ago where I would like post and I would always be there or like check the likes and things like that because then I'm just just checking it. I'm not really creating as much. But now I'm more in a place where I work towards checking it less. But folk, And like even when you create a lot of content, you don't even have time to check all the time as well, <laughs> which is another thing that I have noticed. Mm, I love that creation, content creation versus just checking. Yeah, I like the distinction. And for some of us, we want to be more on the creation side and that's actually feeds us. And that is where there is, you know, creativity and there's the good things. And, you know, I still want to be able to engage. I always say like, it's really important to, that's how you have a sense of community, yeah. right? You can't just put push out content. Um, yeah. Like that's but, usually what yeah, I the do. Distinction like, between I, the distinction between the two. Don't, in, with checking, I meant that I don't check like how many followers, how many likes and, you know, like those kind of things that I first, I can't really control them. Um, but the only, pretty much the only use that I see for social media for me or what I'm trying to implement in my life is to use it to connect with people or to add value. Like those two things mainly, yeah. not as much just to consume it for, unless that's something that I want to do or there's certain things that I'm looking for, then okay. But otherwise just to consume some, for me, not helpful content, I work towards avoiding that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, maybe you can tell people where they can find you or if there's anybody interested to hear more about what you do, how you work and things like that. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is I have the Golden Hour podcast um, and that you can go on to Apple and or whichever uh, Spotify and just type in the golden hour with Maya. And there I'm looking at these subjects. So I'm looking at, you know, how we connect online um, while managing well-being. I'm also looking at aspects of work. But the, the main thing I'm doing is like, how do you create a daily ritual around deep work time and if you can make that good then you can make everything good so it's everything around like focused around that um subject and then you can find me um on social media uh, at maya goodka so m-a-y-a-g-u-d-k-a that's on twitter and instagram um and yeah i've been enjoying clubhouse as well so you can find me there um it's like enjoying learning uh, from all the different conversations on clubhouse yeah. Awesome. I will link all that below as well. Um, well, thank you for coming. This conversation was amazing. Um, and I was really looking forward to it and there's no, it's like, it's obvious why <laughs> after having this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Ostra, And I have to say, I just love your energy. It's so calm. And I think it's incredible when that translates even through like the zoom screen where you can actually feel um <laughs> somebody's positive energy so um thank you well, so thank much thank you for sharing that. <laughs> thank you well thank you for coming <laughs> <laughs>